All right, let's go ahead and uh, open up and open up in prayer real quick. So if you guys don't mind, uh, calming down here. So God, we we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have saved us, and that it is as simple as believing in you that you have paid for all our sins, and not just uh, one specific type of sin, as we'll talk about tonight. Uh, your grace is sufficient, and it is abounding, and it enables us to do good works. We thank you for that and ask that you would lay out those good works for us to do, uh, that you would lead us in them, and that you would help us to uh, glory even more in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you guys for coming again. Good to see we got a full class again. I don't know where we all went for the last few weeks, but people have been out and about. Coffin and hacking. Coffin and hacking, yeah, it's that season, that time of year. Uh, so last week, uh, we went over the Roman Catholic views on authority and how they claim total spiritual authority over the entire world, and that they alone are the, have the keys to the kingdom, as they put it, and that they alone are the ones who can interpret the Bible and the traditions that have been handed down to us from previous generations of Christians. Uh, it was a quick overview uh, and, and takedown of those bold and false claims. Uh, there is so much more that could have been said about the topic, but unfortunately, we only had an hour to cover it, so I did what I could. Uh, perhaps if there's enough interest, we could do a whole seminar on Catholics just for themselves, if you guys are interested. Uh, you just have to let me know. Uh, and by the way, there are uh, other topics that we could cover if you want. Uh, just let me know if there's a topic you want covered in the seminar. I enjoy researching and presenting these things, so... There's just something that you want covered. Go ahead and let me know. Could do a part two of discerning deceptive doctrines. We can cover groups like Christian scientists, Seventh-day Adventists, etc. Uh, just other groups that are not as widely known as uh, as, <laughs> as uh, the groups that we've covered in this class, but uh, that are still impacting uh, out there, impacting people. So. Uh, one thing that I would suggest maybe is a, a seminar on church history. I don't know if there's going to be enough interest in that, uh, but I think it's an important topic because evangelicals, by and large, act like the Apostle Paul handed off the New Testament to Martin Luther, and like that 1,400 years, 1,500 years of history just doesn't exist, um, but that's not true. Uh, that history, including all the way through the Middle Ages, is our history. We have nothing to be ashamed of there. We can be proud of, of Christians and what they did in those times. Uh, the Catholics say it's theirs, but... I disagree heartily. Uh, there's a quote from a guy named Jaroslav Pelikan that tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Uh, Catholicism fell off into traditionalism a long time ago. They have a dead faith as much as they want to claim and say that it's alive. Uh, we're going to talk about that really extensively today. And then uh, Paul himself exhorted us to learn from leaders of the past. So remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So, anyways, I'll stop making the pitch for that idea. But so, just, if you guys have an interest, let me know, let Joel know, or one of the other pastors, and we'll think of, we'll look at putting something together. So. All right, so today uh, we're going to take a deep dive into the issue of salvation and justification. Uh, presenting what the Catholics have to say about it versus what the Bible has to say about it. And there's a massive, colossal difference. 
This is the biggest issue between, uh, excuse me, between Catholics and Protestants or Evangelicals. This is the issue of salvation. This is what divides us more than anything else. There are a lot of other issues that are important that also are in the mix, but this is the fundamental one. Um, so, what does it exactly the Catholic Church teaches about the way we're saved, why we're uh, saved? I mentioned it a few times leading up to this class, but we're about to see those specific teachings and why it is a works-based system. Uh, the reality is that the gospel presented by the Catholic Church is a twisted version of what we read in the pages of Scripture. Uh, Paul would be horrified and angered by what, by what they teach. So, this is Paul writing to the Galatians about a group that also wanted to add works onto grace, the same as Catholics do. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's from Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 7. Uh, the Catholic Church really does trouble a lot of people. It troubled me for several years after I became a Christian. They throw that claim of authority out and they put their weight behind it, and it's it can be hard to stand up against if you don't know the Bible well enough and if you don't know history well enough. Another verse uh, from Galatians that Paul writes is, For I am now seeking the approval, or I am now, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Don't seek the approval of the Catholic Church. Seek the approval of God. And by the way, Paul did not pull his punches on this topic. Right? He wrote to the Galatians, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Uh, and if the, the ESV there is actually kind of uh, putting a euphemism there, emasculate, it's literally castrate yourself. So to cut off your male private parts there. So after all, uh, he's making the argument there that if, it's, if works can increase your righteousness, right, then why only take the foreskin off if it's just a little bit of grace. Why not, go, why not get more righteousness and go all the way? Right? Why settle for only a little bit of righteousness when you can have even more? So he's, he does not pull back his punches on that at all. So. And by the way, that really is in the Bible. I didn't make that up. So uh, some things that are in there can be surprising. Uh, the issue of justification has real-world consequences for people. Just as a quick story, um, in 1959, there was, let me just read this here, uh, young, a young girl or teenager named Shirley O'Neill, she was a Catholic, was swimming with a friend that she had recently met at school by the name of Albert Kogler. Kogler seemingly was an agnostic. O'Neill reported that he had told her that he didn't need religion, so he didn't need religion, I have myself. That's what he had told her. Well, they went out swimming together. And then a six-and-a-half-foot great white shark attacked Kogler, giving him fatal injuries. I won't give you the details. I did read the report, but it was a pretty brutal attack. O'Neill heroically grabbed him while the shark was attacking him and pulled him to shore, where she was faced with the dilemma of what do you do when you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian, they only have a few minutes left to live, what are you going to say to them? Right? That's the, that's the question we're trying to answer today. Uh, well, her solution was to baptize him. That was it. She didn't have really much to say to him. Um, the Catholic view of baptism is that it erases, it erases sin from your life. So that way you can die in a state of sinlessness. Uh, he, this, therefore, she thinks that by baptizing him, 
Because the, the, the work is, uh, the faith that matters is the one of the one, is the matter, is stuttering. The faith that matters is the one who's performing the sacrament, not the one receiving it in the Catholic view. So the fact that she had faith was good enough for him. Right? So she thinks that she got this guy to heaven, even though he had already self-proclaimed that he didn't need God, he had himself. So I don't know where this guy went. I don't know everything that happened and between when he said that to her and when he died. Uh, but So I mean, I'm not going to make a judgment call on what happened to him. We'll know someday. Uh, but uh, she had an opportunity there, and I think she missed it, right, to share the gospel with him. So what is the Catholic view of justification? Uh, the harsh reality is that Catholics labor under a works-based system. They're going to balk at me saying that, but that's, that is the reality. Uh, we're going to get into a nitty-gritty here in a little bit. It fundamentally is really no different than any other religious system in the world. Uh, apart from true Christianity, which is what we hold to here. They do have a stronger emphasis on the necessity for grace than other groups, like the Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, who say that Jesus only died for Adam's sin, uh, and not fully for our own sins. Uh, but fundamentally, it is still the same. It's kind of like comparing American-Republican government versus British parliamentary government. They're both fundamentally just a form of representative government, just different flavors of it. That's Catholics and Mormons. It's just two different flavors of the same philosophy of infusing grace and works together. Uh, so, and when a Catholic dies, they actually have no idea on where they're going. They have no confidence at all. Unless they literally got baptized right before they die. That's the only way that they, can, that they think that they know for sure uh, where they're going. It's entirely possible in the Catholic view that somebody could live their entire life as a person doing good works following all the sacraments and the teachings of the church, only to commit a mortal sin right before they die and go to hell. So, for example, like, anger is a mortal sin. So if you go off the handle and you yell at your wife or your kids or whatever, let's just say, uh, use an example from one of Joel's recent videos, that you have a husband, him and his wife get in a fight, he gets angry, yells some things at her, gets in his car and drives away in anger, gets in a car crash and dies. Well, he died in a state of mortal sin there. Even though he was a good Catholic all the way up into his life, he's going to hell now. So that's their view. That's not the Christian view, uh, but that's their view. Uh, so if you commit a moral sin, you have to cleanse it through confession and penance. We'll talk about that in detail in a little bit. Um, and even if a Catholic dies without committing a moral sin, they still could end up going to purgatory. Right? They don't know if they're going to make it to heaven or if they're going to have to go to purgatory or they're going to have to pay for their sins for however long it takes to burn off their extra sins because Jesus didn't die for all sins, only for some sins. All right? and we're going to talk about that as well. So enough teasing. Uh, let's get into the nitty-gritty about what they believe and compare it with, to what the Bible says. And remember, the issue is not the necessity of grace for salvation but the sufficiency of it. Wait, so grace is necessary but not sufficient. Works are necessary for salvation. Participation in Catholic sacraments <laughs> is required. A life of meritorious works is required. Uh, you could put it like this. Uh, faith plus works plus the sacraments equals salvation. You lose out on any one of those and you don't get salvation in the Catholic view. 
Baptism is absolutely necessary in their view. That's one of the sacraments. All unbaptized people go to hell, including infants. And that's why they practice infant baptism. And the baptism that Catholics perform, in their view, is different from other Protestant groups who do infant baptism, such as Lutherans and Presbyterians. It's a completely different thing. That's not for erasing sins. Uh, it's under something called covenant theology. We're not going to get into it tonight at all, but just know that when, you know, if you have a Lutheran that baptizes their baby, they don't think that they're erasing sin, like the same way Catholics do. Uh, so they divide sanctification up into two parts. And by the way, Catholic theology, I think I mentioned this last time, it's really complicated. Um, it's complex. It takes hours and hours and hours of reading to go through their material. It's very convoluted. It's kind of rich that they say that they're the only clear, they provide the only clear teaching of Christian truth in the world, when, which we covered last time, when it's, I mean, being a Catholic theologian is one of the worst jobs in the world. Well, you have to read. Um, and there's so much of it, and there's so much stuff that contradicts and elevates things of different importance, and it's a mess. So, But ultimately, what this really comes down to from the Council of Trent is that sanctifying grace gives you initial justification, uh, which is this is what you get at baptism. This is where they will say, hey, we do believe in, in, faith, in salvation by grace alone. Okay, if you have a Catholic who tells you that, they're either uninformed or they're informed and they're pulling your leg, right? They're trying to manipulate you and not give you the full truth. Uh, only this first phase is by grace alone. It's not connected to works. Uh, this is right from the, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. That's what CCC stands for, from paragraph uh, 1999. It says, The grace of Christ is the gratuitous gift that God makes to us of his own life infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul, so not imputated, like what we would say. It's what the Bible says, it's infused, uh, to heal it of sin and to sanctify it. It is the sanctifying or deifying grace received in baptism. Uh, it is in us the source of the work of sanctification. And again, uh, from paragraph 2010, no one can merit the initial grace of salvation and justification at the beginning of conversion. So somebody has to baptize you in order, to be, in order for you to get any grace at all. All works that are done before baptism don't count for anything. Only works count. Uh, only works can, uh, done after baptism count in their view. Uh, and so going back to the tragic story of Albert Kobler, which I told you about, when Miss O'Neill baptized him on the beach, according to their teaching. Albert got to go to heaven because he died right after receiving this and he didn't have enough time to commit mortal sins because he just died right at the spot on the beach. So is last minute baptism slash conversion almost like a safer option to guarantee heaven than to try and work it out? Well, that's actually something that historically has gone back and forth on. So there are periods of time in the Catholic Church where they waited until the last possible moment to be baptized. Uh, but then you have problems where, oops, I had an accident, right? And I died, I fell off the bridge and broke my leg and died, you know, or whatever. Uh, you, and then you didn't make it, right? You go to hell, even though you were living your life as a Catholic up to that point. So then they reverted to just doing it right away when you're baptized. Right? I think it's, they're living to baptize again, you know, I 
Well, only one baptism. Yeah. And they'll accept baptism from other groups too. So like if you're a Lutheran or Baptist and you get baptized and you become a, a Catholic, they just accept that as well. So yeah, but only one baptism. One that's all you get. What about the sacrament that they have of last rites? Last that's different. Um, it's that's just a way of uh, granting you like indulgences, basically, to decrease your time in uh, in purgatory. It's has nothing to do with salvation at all. It has no impact on where you where you go, unless unless you only needed this much extra good works, and then you did your right. Well, now now you can make it. You can skip purgatory. You know. So, uh, and and getting time off your in purgatory or reducing your suffering is a big deal to them. Like it's a really big deal to Catholics. So, uh, but we're going to cover that at the very, very end of the class. Good questions. Um, okay, and to further illustrate this, okay, I went through a confirmation class while I was in college, because uh, remember, I became a Christian between my freshman and sophomore year, and then I thought being a Christian meant being a Catholic. So I immediately started attending a class, even though I didn't need to be confirmed, I went through it growing up. Just wanted to go through the motions and learn what I didn't pay attention to when I was a teenager. Uh, and while I was there, uh, there was a handful of other people who had not been baptized yet. And the priest literally told them that now was the time for them to sin it up. Because after they were baptized, they wouldn't be able to have their sins cleansed again this way. He just literally told them that. Uh, and it wasn't fully a tongue-in-cheek thing. It's literally, whatever sins you want to commit now are fine because you're going to get baptized and they will be cleansed. So just don't die before you get baptized, because we're doing that at the end of the year. <coughs> uh, and even, I want to take a moment to illustrate how ridiculous this is. So I lived in Phoenix for several years uh, when I was attending seminary there, and I still loosely follow the news that comes out of there. And I heard this story last year about a priest, Father Arango, who was performing baptisms wrong for 20 years, according to the Catholic Church. So someone found out that when he would, he would say, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not I baptize you. Well, that, according to the Catholic Church, they decided on this in their hierarchy, up the chain, that all the baptisms that he had performed for 20 years were invalid. So in the Catholic view, nobody was saved in this guy's church for decades. Okay, And he ended up resigning as, this, as the, the priest of that church, and his penance has been to... Uh, have to go and baptize all these people. You've got to find them, seek them out, and, uh, and baptize them properly. Uh, so can you imagine, right, you, your dad right, was baptized by this guy, and then he passes away, and he thought that he was being a good Catholic, but your priest sucked, right? He made a major mistake, and now dad's in hell. Okay, just because of one little technicality, it's absurd, okay? It's totally absurd. Um, so that's what he's been doing now for the last year, seeking people out and saying, I'm sorry, I'm going to do it right. And by the way, that negates all those good works that people have been doing as well, because none of them count until after you're baptized. So they took less 20 years off their lives. So, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So stage two, justification. So after you've been baptized properly by somebody, uh, this is what they say about it. The preparation of man for the reception of grace is already a work of grace. So that's initial salvation. This latter is needed to arouse and sustain our collaboration to justification. 
through faith and in sanctification through charity. So you're sanctified through charity, which in the Catholic dictionary, which you could look up, it just basically means good works. Okay, that's what that's what charity means to a Catholic. Uh, and another quote, these are all from the Catholic Catechism. So, moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace, so you can increase in grace by doing good works, and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. So you can merit for yourselves the graces needed for the attainment of eternal life, right? If you remove some of those clauses that are in there. That's what it means. You have to do good works to attain uh, eternal life. So you only get, get into the door, right? Your original sin and all the moral sins that you could commit are removed at baptism. That's it. All your venial sins, you've got you to gotta pay for those, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Um, so good works are not just considered to be the fruit of your salvation, which is to be proof that you have sincere faith in Christ but rather merits your salvation. And they don't use the word earn. I don't like that word. They use the word merit all the time. But merit is just an, another word for earn. That's all it is. Because merit is what was the English word uh, back at that time. So that's just where it comes from. Uh, but what does the Bible have to say about this? Right? It's uh, right from Romans 11.6. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. <clears throat> Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You cannot earn grace. Grace is a freely given gift. Okay, so they want to say you do good works and you earn extra grace. Paul vehemently disagrees with that. Okay, if it is by works, it's no longer grace by definition. That's what Paul's saying. And then uh, Paul again in Ephesians writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So according to that verse, uh, do good works come before or after being saved? Right? Or like, is, are good works that lead you to salvation, or are they good works as something that comes after you've received salvation? After, very clearly after. Now, 2 Corinthians, again, this is very consistent throughout the New Testament. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So grace, he's going to just give you loads of grace. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, grace is sufficient for you in everything. You may abound in every good work. So you are given grace, you are given salvation, so that you can do good works. That's the biblical view. So the good works are the proof that you are saved. Right? The fact that you are leading a more holy life, the fact that you're doing things to help people, that's evidence of your salvation. And we're going to talk about James 2 also at the end. Uh, this is from the Council of Trent, their view on justification. Uh, it says, justification is not only a remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man. So justification is the renewal of the inner man. So they take justification and sanctification, which... The Bible separates as two separate things, and they make them one thing. You just become more holy until you have finally attained salvation. Uh, spiritual progress, this is, also, this is from the Catholic Catechism again. 
Spiritual progress tends towards ever more intimate union with Christ. This union is called mystical because it participates in the mystery of Christ through the sacraments. Uh, what does this mean? So participation in the sacraments offered by, uh, offered by the church is a major way that you, uh, major one of the works that you have to perform. Right? You have to participate in the sacraments, that's what this is saying. And as a side note, uh, this is a quote from Father Daniel Mahan, who's, who's quoting this passage and what it means. He's saying that God calls us to a mystical union with Christ through the sacraments for the sake of our spiritual progress. So your relationship with Christ is not through personal relationship with him. Your connection with him is not through personal relationship, right? Direct, or you can communicate directly with him. It is only through the sacraments that a priest can administer. So as a, in the Catholic view, you do not have a direct relationship with Christ at all. You have to go through a priest and the, sacrifice, and the, and the sacraments that he offers. That's in the catechism. Uh, we're going to talk about priests next time, more specifically. Um, so I'm only going to be really brief here, but a priest, by definition, is somebody who intercedes between you and God. That's just what a priest is. Jesus made us all into priests. Okay, So we have no need for any earthly priesthood at all. That's the Hebrews. Uh, your relationship with God is not dependent upon going through a human priest. Okay? The Catholic Church imposes itself between you and God and is completely antithetical to what the Gospel teaches. The curtain was torn in two to represent this reality. Right? The fact that that's, that was when the curtain tore after Jesus died on the cross, that was a symbol of like the, the Holy of Holies is there. You can now have direct access to God himself. You don't need to go through, there's no barrier there that you need a priest to mediate for you. You have the access. Um, and this is tragic that they do that. Okay, they allow men, if you're a Catholic, you allow a man to stand in your way of a personal relationship with your creator. And it's sad. Um, and by the way, yeah, union with Christ is through the sacraments. Lay people are only allowed to receive three out of the seven sacraments that the church offers. So you can only have three-sevenths of a relationship with God by being a lay person. If you want to get more, then you have to become a priest, which I think you only get five at that point in time. Uh, and then if you want to move up, become a cardinal or a bishop, then you get six. You don't get the seventh one until you die. So the, the right of, uh, the last rites is what they call it. So you're, you can only relate to God through the sacraments. That's it. So you can't even have a full-blown relationship even if you participate in the sacraments of the church unless you join the church itself and move all the way up. All right, uh, this is some more uh, content for what they believe about final justification. It says, The children of our Holy Mother, the Church, rightly hope for the grace of final perseverance, so that's final justification, and the recompense of God, their Father, for the good works accomplished with His grace in communion with Jesus. So recompense, uh, old school word, it just means to make amends with someone when you've done harm to them. You make recompense with somebody that you've done harm to. Uh, the Catholic Catechism teaches that we need to make amends for our sins by doing good works. That's what this is saying. So you need to do good works to make amends with God for the relationship that you broke. Uh, but what does the Bible say? This is uh, from Paul again in Philippians chapter 3. It says, Indeed, 
I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So there's no, relation, there's no priest in between him and knowing God. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All, of the, all the good things that I've done in my life, they're worthless. All right? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's you are imputed the grace of, or the righteousness of Christ onto you. That's what you receive when you become saved. Right? So when God looks at you, he sees Christ's works. He doesn't see yours. Okay? Because ours are rubbish. But Christ's were good. Um, the Council of Trent, uh, spend, we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Uh, they basically have a, it's, it's, it took place over many years, uh, and then they release things as they went. Uh, they have things called canons, which are just rules or laws, uh, and where they basically just put out a statement saying, if you believe this, then you're cursed. If you believe this, then you're cursed. And by cursed, it's the word anathema we're going to see. It just means you are going to hell if you believe this. That's what it means. So we're going to go through four of them. And then we're just going to read what the Catholic Church says. And these are still like dog, Christian or Catholic dogma. So they are in full effect. They cannot be rescinded in the Catholic view because they're infallible, according to them. Uh, it's Canon 9. It says, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, so basically if you're saying you don't need works to be justified, then that, um, and that is not any way necessary, then he, when he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So if you think that you can just believe in God and not count on your own works, you're cursed. So and this is another reason why it's really hard to read Catholic faith, is it's hard. It's hard language. So, uh, What's the biblical response to this? Uh, just three quick verses. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sights, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, that's verse 20 of chapter 3 of Romans. And then 24, it says, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it is no works of law required for salvation. In fact, if you're depending on your works, you're not going to make it. It is by faith alone. Very clear. The Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works have nothing to do with it. It do with salvation. Uh, and then from Titus 3.5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Okay, even our righteous works, that's not what saves us. But according to His own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it's entirely a work of God, is salvation. It's not dependent upon us at all. And then you can see also Romans 4.3, Romans 5.1, and Ephesians 2.8. Uh, we actually just read Ephesians 2.8. Canon 14. If anyone saith that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified, because that he assuredly believed, believed himself absolved and justified, so if you be just believe that you're saved because of faith in God, or that no one is truly justified, but he who believes himself justified. It's only people who, if you only believe that you're uh, saved by faith alone, and that by faith alone, absolution, justification are affected, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. What does the Bible say, right? 
For what does, so basically, if you just believe that you're saved because you're trusting in God, you have faith, then they're saying that's not good enough. You're cursed. Uh, but Paul writes in Romans, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All it took was faith in God. And then he was credited with righteousness, right? A future uh, righteousness that comes from Christ. Uh, Romans 5.3, one chapter later, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, you, you're saved, and now you can have a relationship with him. You have peace with God. The, there's no more anonymity between you and God. You don't have these sins that are in the way of relationship that just haven't been paid for yet. Canon 24. If anyone saith that the justice received is not pres uh, preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be cursed. And if you think that works don't increase your salvation and are just fruits of salvation, then you're cursed. Uh, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, O foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Was it by works or by faith that you were saved? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And don't go back to a works-based system. It's not how you're saved. Okay? You could also... But we'll put James chapter 2 in here as well for verses as a response to this. But we're going to dig deep into that one in a little bit. And then the last one we're going to cover, <clears throat> Canon 30. If anyone saith that after the grace of justification has been received to every penitent sinner, the guilt is remitted, and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise, uh, that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance of the kingdom of heaven can be opened uh, to him, let him be anathema. So if you think Jesus died for all of your sins, not just some of them, you're cursed. That's what they teach. That's infallible, right, in quotations, uh, teaching from the Catholic Church. Uh, what Paul writes in Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There, is no, there are no sins between you and God anymore. He paid for them all. Uh, also from Colossians chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All of your sins were paid for. They were all put on the cross. There is no distinction between certain kinds of sins. Jesus died for them all. And that's a good and glorious thing. And it's, it's really good for us because we, we can't do good works. Not really. Right? We're all inherently uh, corrupted. So. But Christ, uh, he gives us his works. Right? He gives us his righteousness. Uh, let's take a look at James 2. Saved by works? Question mark? Oh, actually, one last comment about the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, right, I want to be clear, is an abomination before the Lord. Okay? It says that if you deny the Council, and this is in Canon 33, which I didn't put up there, but it says if you deny these teachings, you are cursed by God. 
But on the contrary, Paul says that if you believe the things that this council presents, it is you who are cursed, not those whom it places a curse on. Because he says that in Galatians, uh, that if you believe, you need to add works to grace, you're the one who's cursed. That's anathema. That's my final comment about uh, uh, Council of Trent. By the way, I don't hate Catholics. Okay? I do hate Catholicism because it distorts God's plan of salvation. Uh, and it diminishes Christ to the point of uselessness. And that's also what Paul says in Galatians 5 2 that you've made Christ useless by adding works to it. All right, so James 2. Uh, this is the verse that they'll quote. It's the only one that they'll quote when they try to uh, bring, bring uh, evangelicals to see, try to see their point of view. It says, uh, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's contrary to everything I've been saying up to this point, doesn't it? Uh, everything that Paul has been saying. I mean, we've shown a ton of verses. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? That's James chapter 2, 24 through 25. Uh, this verse, by the way, is why Martin Luther called uh, James the Epistle of Straw. Um, he had some frustrations with, uh, with the book of James. Uh, but if you really take the time and read it, in which, by the way, Martin Luther wasn't saying that it's a useless book. He actually he did translate it. He kept it in the canon. Uh, his issue... Let's see here. So the reason why he called it an epistle of straw, it was in comparison to the rest of the New Testament books. He did so because it was because the book of James does not teach you all that is necessary and salutary for you to know. So you can read the book of James by itself and you don't have everything you know to, know to be saved. It's not the same with Timothy, that's not the same with Corinthians, it's not the same with Ephesians, it's not the same with any of the Gospels. And that was, that was his frustration with it. But he still thought it was a good book because it teaches all that is necessary. Uh, it's still useful because it sets up no doctrine of men, but vigorously promulgates the law of God. And that's really what James does, is it really expounds on the law of God and what that means for people who are already saved. So this is not a book written for unbelievers. It's a book written specifically for believers. So let's just read the whole passage, right? So 14 through 26. It's a little long, uh, but it'll help you get that context for what James means when he says that we're not saved by faith alone. Because he's not using the words the same way that Paul is using them. All right, so what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what, excuse me, what good is that? See also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Uh, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, by the way, Paul quotes that exact same verse to prove that 
salvation by faith alone uh, in Romans. Uh, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, uh, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also a faith, so also faith apart from works, is dead. Okay, so James is using the word justified differently than the way Paul used it, or the concept of it. Okay, when Paul... When Paul uses the word justification, we're justified by faith alone, he's using it in the theological sense, meaning we are made right before God by faith alone. It's very clear throughout all his writings. Like, it's inarguable. Even the Catholics won't argue with it. They just think that, it's, that we're not interpreting it right. Um, <clears throat> James is using justification in the normal human sense of the word. We are shown to be right before men, not before God, when he's saying that we're justified. Okay? So our faith, we prove that our faith is real by our works, which is exactly what we've been saying that works are good for, right? Is they prove that your faith is real. That's, that's really what James 2 is about. It's saying your faith, you, if you say you have faith, but you're not doing good works, then your faith is useless. You don't actually have faith. That's the whole point of it. So it's all about how other people can see if you're saved or not. So you're justified before men. So how do you know that, uh, was, that Abraham was justified? By his works. Right? Same thing. How do you know that any one of us are justified? And that we really have saving faith. It's by looking at what we do. So if you look at somebody and uh, they're, they've been a Christian for 20 years, but they still swear profusely, they're still stealing from their employer, right? they're having sex outside of marriage, etc., well, you haven't grown at all in 20 years, so we're going to call into question your faith, right? We don't think you're really saved. That's the argument James is making. Um, and by the way, Jesus himself justified himself before men by doing good work. That's the story uh, of the paraplegic coming through the roof. I think it's also in Matthew 9, where Jesus says, your, your faith has saved you, right? Or you, your, your sins are forgiven. And they say, hey, you can't forgive sins. How, like, only God can do that. He says, well, let me prove it to you. I'm going to heal this man right now. So get up, pick up your mat, and walk. So he's justifying himself before men, proving that what he said was right by doing a good work. <coughs> so it's, it's just two different senses of the word, before God and before men. Uh, this is consistent with Paul. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2, it says, it's for grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then, what comes afterwards? Right? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were saved in order to do good works, which God prepared for you to do. So walk in them. So do the good works. You were created to do them, that's why you were saved. At least one of the reasons. So. Any questions about that? Well, there's a lot to go through there. All right, so we're going to wrap up here. Uh, the categories of sin. So Catholics want to say there are two kinds of sins. Venial sins, uh, which are less serious. They do not remove sanctifying grace from you. Uh, so that's what you receive from baptism. And then you will pay for these in purgatory. 
They can be offset by doing good works, though. So that's why the good works are important to them. That, okay, I've received my baptism, I haven't committed any moral sins, but I keep doing little sins along the way, and I'm going to pray the rosary or do other things, uh, help somebody, so that I can have good works to offset your sins. That's what a venial sin is. A moral sin, on the other hand, is serious, it's done knowingly, and it removes sanctifying grace from you. So you lose your, the, the effect of your baptism when you commit uh, a mortal sin. That could be like murder, serious theft, things like that, uh, adultery, divorce, those things they consider to be moral sins. Um, you cannot get baptized again, so the way that you get resaved in the Catholic view, because you can lose your salvation, be resaved multiple <laughs> times over your life, is to go through confession. And the, sac- and the sacrament of penance. And that's, that's why confession is such a big deal for them. It's the only way to remove a mortal sin. Uh, confession, by the way, does not remove venial sins, only mortal sins. But going to confession can, is a good work that can help you offset those, good, offset those sins, but it doesn't forgive them. So Catholicism really reduces and minimizes sin. Because you can go through your whole life thinking, I'm still a good person, I've only committed small sins. It's not a big deal before God. Uh, we're going to talk about that, but it is a big deal. A small sin is a big deal to God. Uh, so confession, what is it? It's a ritual, for those of you who didn't grow up Catholic, uh, where you go back and forth to the priest and confess your sins. So it's like you have set things you need to say, and there are set things that they're going to say in response. So for example, you have to do the sign of the cross when you enter the booth. Like It's required that you do that, it doesn't count. And you have to say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been it's two years since my last confession, or however long it's been. And then they have their response that they come back with, and then you confess your sins. So you just go through one at a time, confess <coughs> the sins that you made. And then the priest, based on the sins that you told him, is going to give you a penance. And a penance is a good work that you have to do. So, for example, when I uh, went to confession, when I was still trying to be a Catholic in high, in, or in college, uh, they f- frequently would just tell me, go say ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys. So I'd have to go out there and kneel in the booth, and I'd say the Our Father ten times. And sometimes you lose track. I'm like, oh, I better say one more just in case. Because if you only do nine, then it, <laughs> you did it for nothing. Right? So you got to do the ten, because that's the one the priest gave you. Okay? Uh, then the priest, he extends his right hand, and he forgives you your sins. He says, I absolve you of your sins, my child. Go in peace. And that forgives you your sins. So you have to, you have to complete the penance, though, to, to fully receive that absolution. Uh, and then sanctifying grace is restored to your soul. What happens if you do a work and forget about the confession? You're done. Well, okay, well, that's, that, that's the thing. You're done. Yeah. They don't offer that. Okay. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying is you, you could have knowingly committed a moral sin, forget about it, don't confess it. Well, I seem to recall and you can go in to confession saying, there might be a couple of things that I forgot. And he okay. said, okay. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> there, there, there is that. You can say, there are some things I may have forgotten. Uh, yeah, and he'll say, okay, I'll forgive them. So, so, so if you go and do that blanket for yourself, you kind of, if you go do that blanket, 
Yeah, you're, you're done. Yeah, you're not gonna make it. So yeah, I forgot about that. So yeah, I actually I used that one time. I think about it. Uh, so that's confession and then penance. So confession is not the sacrament. Confession is by the means by which you get the sacrament of penance. Okay, so that's what you need to do. You need to do the penance. And they could give you all kinds of different things. It could be, hey, you have to, I don't know, go do prison ministry for a month with me or whatever. Whatever they think is relevant, right? So that's a way for them to maybe keep you involved in the church a little bit too. Um, so there's, most of the time it's going to be say prayers or they'll say, say the rosary a hundred times or, I mean, that might be a little extreme. It'd be pretty bad soon, but like 10 times where the rosary is the beads where you each you alternate. You have a red bead, you say the Our Father, and a blue bead, you say Hail Mary, etc. And you go around the whole necklace. So if you have to say, you know, like 20 of them, you want to get the small rosary. Right? You don't want to get the big ones. Yeah, and if you go into the church at like 5 before the, the, early service, the early service, there'll be like 600 old ladies in there all chanting together. And they're doing their rosaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, that They're doing that, though, not necessarily for penance. They're doing that for indulgences. Oh, we're going to get to in a second. Because uh, their purgatory, uh, real quickly, is it's a place of suffering where you pay for your venial sins. So it's basically like hell, except it's temporary. So it's not, it's not the same place as hell. It is a separate place in their view. But you're going to be, there's fire there. It's, it's a place of suffering and torture, just like hell. But eventually you get out. And there are no official teachings on how long you have to spend there. Could be minutes, could be years, decades. Just depends on how bad of a sinner you are. It's going to be proportional. Uh, and it's the intensity of the suffering as well can vary. Uh, but that's purgatory. And they have something called the treasury of merit, which is where indulgences come in. Uh, extra good works performed by Jesus, Mary, and other saints are banked with a little reservoir of good works that they call the treasury of merit. So when you hey, say, hey, St. Paul the Apostle, St. Peter, St. Uh, Teresa, they, they think that uh, they did so many good works when they were here that they were able to skip purgatory and go straight to heaven. And all the extra good works that they didn't need to make it to heaven are put into the bank. <laughs> so that the Pope can then dish it out to people. Right? He can dispense it to people to reduce their good works. So, okay, well, Mother Teresa fed this person one time, and Mike, um, you know, you prayed the rosary, so here's, here's a little indulgence. So that you get, to, it's as if uh, St. Teresa fed the poor, and that's just one year off your life, uh, or off your uh, term in purgatory. So that's, that's what it is. So you benefit from other people's good works, but only if the Pope has allowed it, basically. So the Pope is the one who can dispense it. Uh, so, and it only offsets venial sins. It does not offset uh, moral sins. Uh, they say that this treasury is inexhaustible. Because there's so many good works that have been out there, but done by good Catholics over the years, that uh, that our sins can't cover cover it all. So, so you don't you don't, you don't need to worry about if saying, "Uh oh, we're out of good works," so now you have to pay the full time purgatory. It doesn't make interest. Is that why? It and you know, maybe, maybe it makes interest. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so 
and indulgence is a dispensation of merits. So there's dis there's things that are just automatic. So like right now there's a general uh, indulgence provided, where if you pray the rosary, you lose time in purgatory. You get a a partial indulgence is what it's called. Or if you every time that that's why all the old ladies are going into the church to do rosaries for an hour before the service because. They think they're accruing indulgences to cover all their sins so that they don't go to purgatory for as long. Uh, there are also other ones. Uh, you can get plenary sin or plenary indulgences. These are ones that just cover everything. So it's like being baptized again. Uh, and they offer these once in a while. The most recent that I'm aware of was Pope Francis said anybody who prays for the coronavirus pandemic to end and then also... Uh, engages in these other active devotion. He lists like six or seven of them, that they get a plenary indulgence and all your venial sins up to that point have been wiped out. So you did, you did a good thing. So a lot of Catholics are like, let's pray and end this coronavirus and then I'm going to go to confession or do whatever these other uh, acts of devotion are. So that's, that's what he offered. Uh, and by the way, this is something that was very controversial in the, in the, during the time of the Reformation. It was, it was the issue that Martin Luther got angry about and nailed his theses on the wall that started the whole Reformation in, what was it, 15, 1518, I think, or on Halloween, uh, was the issue of indulgences because the Catholic Church was selling these at the time. So you could go give money to the church, and then the Pope would say, if you gave money to the church, you are given an indulgence. And these indulgences can be applied either to yourself or somebody who's already dead. So by prayer, to so say, hey, God, I earned this indulgence today. Uh, please give it to my grandma who passed away last year so that she can get out of purgatory a little earlier. So I'm not saving it for myself. Give it to grandma. So that's how it works. Uh, and there was that for uh, Johann Tetzel, was the guy going around raising funds for St. Peter's Basilica. His famous quote is, a, a, uh, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So the, the St. Peter's Basilica was built using funds from the sale of indulgences. So when you see that beautiful building that the church conducts its mass from every day, that was built on money extorted from poor people, trying to get their dead relatives out of, out of purgatory. Okay, it's, it's, it's disgraceful. Okay, it, it reminds me of uh, the apostles when they uh, looked at the temple, because remember it was all plated in gold at this time, the one that was made by... Uh, uh, by Herod, thank you. Uh, and they said, look how beautiful this building is. And Jesus looks at it and he says, uh, not one stone will be left, right? Because that was built by extorting poor people too, by changing the balances of the money for, uh, like when you have to go for, uh, for Passover, right? Because it's in the Bible, you have to pay a shekel or whatever it is for your lamb or for your bird. And then they would say, oh, well, there was no shekels around, right? They were the only ones that had shekels, and so you had Roman money, and they would, the exchange rate would be exorbitant. So you'd have to pay a whole bunch of Roman denarii money in order to get your shekel, and so it was extorting the poor people for their sacrifices, and they used that money to build the temple then. So it's the same thing here, I think, and it's, it's sad. So. Uh, biblical response to this, uh, there are not two categories of sin. All sin is bad, for the wages of sin is death, 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can also look at Romans 3.23, 5.12, 7.13. It's all very clear throughout Scripture. There's no category anywhere that says venial sin and mortal sin. It's sin, 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 sin. It's all bad, and it all leads to death. Even a small sin will cause you to go to hell unless it's paid for by Jesus. Jesus died for all sins, not just mortal sins. Uh, This is from Colossians uh, 12. I think that's supposed to be chapter 2, not 12. Uh, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside nailing it to the cross. Good works do not merit salvation, but are evidence of salvation. As we, from verses that we've already uh, looked at extensively, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and James 2, 14 through 26. And that's, uh, that's the reality. Uh, oh, I have a quote here from, from Martin Luther. These, this was in his 95 thesis. This is thesis 86 about uh, indulgences. It says, why does, not, why does not the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, Crassus was a rich Roman emperor, uh, build the Basilica of St. Peter with his own money, rather than with the money of poor believers? So he really ripped the Pope hard on that, and uh, rightfully so. And by the way, just doing the sign of the cross also earns you an indulgence, so you do the sign of the cross, you just lost 10 minutes in purgatory, I'm good. So I mean, I just I don't know what they they don't assign specific amounts of time to it, but just keep doing it. And then my final comment uh, that I want to make for today's lesson. So as I have clearly demonstrated throughout this class, the Catholic Church is not Christianity with human traditions added around it, as many think of it. It is a beautiful coffin. You can make a coffin out of the best wood, add gold trim, and polish it until it shines brightly. But the, at the end of the day, it contains a dead body and it's going to be buried in the ground. Right? This is the picture of the Catholic Church. They build big, beautiful cathedrals and churches, embellish their faith with sophisticated words, and claim to be the only voice of Jesus Christ on earth, but internally they are spiritually dead. They have no genuine faith in Christ, and they curse those who actually believe in the gospel. And I close with a statement from Jesus, from Matthew chapter 15, 7-9, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It's just that a Catholic church has replaced the Pharisees in our day. So, All right, any questions at all? I got done on time today, so. Hey. So, we got the Catholic Church, most of them do not know this because it's it's a, it's horrible to sit here and read through all this. It's it's complicated to read through, uh, and they don't. I don't think they like Paul. They well, they think they do, right? They made him a saint in their church, but well, they, I remember from they cursed the things that he believed. Church, they, the the main sermon was always on uh, one of the gospels. So, so that's that's what. They mostly talk about it. They might do a reading. They do a reading from yeah. from, from one of the letters or something. So if you the sermon to, was always on on one of the gospels. So yeah, the, the main sermon 
or homily is actually what they call them. They're only like five or ten minutes long in a church service. Uh, it's, always, it's always on the Gospels. Yeah. They think that, that that's where the emphasis needs to be, and it sounds kind of good, but God wrote the entire Bible. Every, the, the, the whole thing teaches the Gospel of Christ. Everything should be taught. They always do a reading from the Old Testament and from the New Testament and from the Gospel. So like from all the letters or something else, but the, the, the homily is always from the Gospel. But they, they claim that the reading from the Old Testament and then from the letters or one of the epistles or acts, that they comment on the Gospel reading. So they provide them as commentary on the Gospel reading, that's it. But you only get ten minutes, at most. That depended a little on ours, because they had a 5.30, a 9, and an 11, and so 5.30 was always pretty quick. Yeah. Um, but at 11, he might talk for a while. He might. So generally, they got you got one hour in Catholic service on the nose, that's yeah, it. Yeah, people get grumpy if you go and the hour. like 40 minutes of that is spent on the Eucharist, and then the rest of it is spent reading, um, and then maybe singing, and uh, the homily. So you have 20 minutes, so we can really see where their emphasis is on, which is on the Eucharist, which we're going to talk about next week. Because they, really, they do believe that that's Jesus. <clears throat> Any other questions? Go ahead. You said that in the Catholic view, an unbaptized infant would go to hell. Correct. So what about an abortive baby? They go to hell. That's, yeah, that's one of the reasons why they're pretty strongly against abortion. So yeah. You, if you have an abortion, that baby went to hell, in their view. That's, that's, not, that's not my view. I don't think that's a biblical view, by the way. I think children go to heaven when they die. Uh, we don't have time to go into all the reasons for that, but maybe another class. Any other questions? All right. Uh, let's end the prayer. So, God, we, we thank you that you have saved us by grace and that you have uh, given us your righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. We pray that you would help us to walk out those good works to prove our salvation and to, to bring glory to your name. We acknowledge that we cannot increase our grace before you because uh, it is a gift of God. And if we add our works to it, then it's no longer grace. So bless us, God, and help us to witness to those uh, who are of the Catholic faith in our lives. Uh, help us to reveal to them the uh, harsh reality of the faith that they're in. And where, even if they don't know this stuff, that they would see it and then reject it and come to faith in you. Help us to be those instruments and to do those good works. In Jesus' name, amen. And then, oh, I forgot to mention, this is this book, so I have, you have this series, right, The Ten Most Important Things to Say to a Catholic, uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. These are really good books. They don't give you, like, the original sources, like I give you, like, right from the Council of Trent, the Catholic Catechism. He just summarizes the view for you, so you can take his word at it, but, but they're really good. And then that's the response to it. So, highly, highly recommend these books. So, it's Ron Rogue's Ten Things That You Can Say. Uh, serious. <laughs>